I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great is our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. I remind my Sunday school class often that biblical scholars can be as focused on as narrow a field as are our physicians. For example, the last book we were dealing with in my Sunday school class before the one we're dealing with now, I told them we were going to use a commentary written by a professor from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Dr. Ernest Best has spent an adult lifetime focusing on the letters of Paul and specifically that second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. And now in his 60s, he was asked if he would write a commentary giving us the very best of 40 years of research. A great German theologian, Dr. Hans-Joachim Krauss, has spent an adult lifetime focused on the book of Psalms. And he had learned so much, wanted to share so much, that he wrote a three-volume study of the book of Psalms. In that second volume, he says, if you're going to deal intelligently with this particular psalm from which I've just read to you, you must know it's Sitzenleben, it's setting in life. I believe, he said, that this poem was written either in the exile in Babylon or immediately thereafter. One of our great American scholars, Dr. James Mays, who has also spent years studying the book of Psalms, agrees. I believe, he said, this great hymn was written during the exile in Babylon or immediately thereafter. So let's review. The last few weeks we've been dealing with text out of 1 Samuel, where we were told that the Israelites, after not wanting a king for 200 years, have decided they do want a king, and they've demanded that Samuel find and anoint them a king, so they can be like all the other nations of the world. God is not happy with that. Samuel is not happy with that. God tells Samuel, well, at least warn them about what kings do. And so Samuel told the Israelites... Kings take. They take your sons. They take your daughters. They take your money. They take your lands. They take your wheat. They take your grapes. They take your olives. Do you understand what kings do? We want a king. And so King Saul was anointed. And the next 400 years were miserable in many ways. One lousy king after another. And then the enemy came. Forerunners of today's Iraqis marched on. Judea burned, destroyed after stripping of their value, both the temple and the, and the residence of the Davidic king, forced marched the best and brightest all the way to Babylon. 
they were, enslaved again. After 600 years from having been freed from the Egyptians, now they were slaves again. And these great scholars believe this psalm was written into that situation either while they were 50 years enslaved, not knowing that the Persians would become even more powerful and overrun the Babylonians and let them go home, only to get home and find that the city was still in ruins, just a mound of ashes on the top of Mount Moriah, just a mound of ashes where the royal residence had been. The gates burned from their hinges and never replaced, the city completely vulnerable to any marauding band that might come along. Look at this psalm in that kind of context. All right, first thing I noticed here, first six verses, I noticed a first-person pronoun. Did you hear it? Let me read it to you. I, me, my, I, my, my, I, 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 my, my, I, 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 my. Eighteen times in six verses, this poet is all about himself. All about me, my, and mine. Know anyone like that? Pixar has just released a new movie. It's called Wall-E. W-A-L-L, all in capital letters, a dot and then a capital E. It's about a little robot. His name is an acronym. The W stands for waste, and the E on the end stands for earth. This little robot is supposed to ingest garbage, form it into neat little compressed squares, and put them aside, stack them. When the movie begins and you see these huge mounds of stacked, compressed garbage, it looks like skyscrapers, but they're not skyscrapers. They're stacked stacks and stacks of garbage. Humans left 700 years before and forgot to turn off the little robot, so he's been ingesting, compressing, and stacking garbage for 700 years. He's sometimes fascinated by what he finds. He takes home an egg beater, a Rubik's Cube. He finds a diamond ring in a box throws the ring away, takes the pretty little box home with him. He's having a pretty miserable life until a young robot flies in whose name is Eve. And the EVE stands for vegetation and so on. But she and he become very close to each other and you see this kind of love between them. The point I want to make is that the humans have left because finally they were up to their armpits in garbage. It's about consumption, consumption, consumption. How long have our sociologists been telling us that we Americans consume by far more than any other peoples on the planet and suddenly others have money? And they're beginning to consume. And it's making our gasoline go up. It's making our utility bills go up. 
It's going to cost you more to keep your house at 70 degrees in a 104 degree August day in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Because others are consuming. Interesting that at the very week this new movie came out, George Carlin died. George Carlin had lots of routines. I remember one long ago when he was going through his refrigerator in his routine and saying one thing he had learned as a child, don't eat anything blue. I've never forgotten, don't eat anything blue. But another of his routines was about stuff. You remember? We go out every morning, he said, and bring home more stuff until we have so much stuff there's not room for us. And we either have to move to a bigger apartment or a bigger house because we are going to keep up with our stuff. And if our house or apartment is not big enough, then we will find a storage area for our stuff. A couple of weeks ago, we drove down to Carthage, Texas to check on my mother. Gail and I know that road well after 28 years. When my father was dying, we went every other weekend for months. We've been many, many times. We can drive it almost blindfolded. I'm still amazed when we drive through some of the little towns, 300 people, that you see two acres of storage facilities. And I always say to Gail, what do the people in Deport, Texas have to store? What do they have to store? They have so much stuff in this little town of 300 people, they can't get it in their houses and barns? Do you understand? This poet begins, I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my. Number two. There's a part here that we didn't read just because the psalm was a little bit long to read all of it in that context of worship, but I read it. Listen to what he then complains. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Do you complain? Fuss? I do. I tell you, it's so discouraging sometimes to get older and have all these things happen to you. Every time I think I've just had one lump or bump removed, I have another lump or bump that needs to be checked on, you know. And then you wait anxiously till they say, that's all right, it was all right, you're going to be fine. I run five days a week. Gail and I love to play tennis on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. But when we've played tennis for two hours and I pull us up into the garage and we start to get out of the car, we both go, Our knees can hardly get us out of the car and into the shower, you know, because knees at our age don't act like knees acted 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. They don't act the same. And so we can moan and mumble and complain. But there are people in the world who have real problems. Another movie came out this week called Crossing. It came out of Seoul, South Korea, but it's about North Korea. It was written after some of the very fortunate, blessed ones were able to get into South Korea from North Korea. Now, they can't go straight from north to south. There's a demilitarized zone there now for 50 years. And it's not that the Americans would keep them from coming south. It's the North Koreans who will not let their own people go south. 
And so if they're going to escape the communist regime there, they have to cross the Tumen River. The Tumen River into China. But of course, China's communist also. So if they try to get out of North Korea, where they are starving to death, where they eat dog, not because they like dog, but because it's the only protein they can catch. One family in the movie has a little one-room shack with a 60-watt light bulb in it. That's it. And they have to finally eat their pet dog because they have nothing else. One family is Christian. A neighbor reports them to the authorities. The authorities come and search the house. Finally, up above the ceiling, they find a Christian Bible. And that mother and father and three children disappear. No one has seen them since. The ones who do successfully cross the river into Red China find that most of the time the females are sold into prostitution and the men are put into work gangs or executed immediately. It's only a few very few who finally make it to South Korea where there's hope and love. Crossing, crossing. With our gasoline bills, are we complaining, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love ceased forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has His anger shut up all of His compassion? Let's go to number three. Notice the change from the first point. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. This calls the name given to Moses at the burning bush. Eye, Asher, Eye. I am who I am. And he speaks to that one, your wonders, your work, your deeds, your way, your might, your strong arm, your people, you, O God, you, your arrows, your thunder, your lightnings, your way, your path, your people. Not 18 times, but 15. 15 times he now uses a second person pronoun. Not first, but second. And I wish you could read this in Hebrew because in Hebrew there are two different words for that second person pronoun as there are in many other languages. Used to be in English. Uh, we had this differentiation. The word you was really pretty informal. The word of endearment was thou, possessive was thine. You have this in German. If you want to say to your spouse or your child, your grandchild, I love you, you would never say ich liebe sie, because sie is this formal address. You, you use it when you speak to someone you don't know very well, someone you're asking for directions on a street. If you love this child, this grandchild of yours, you would say, ish liebe dish. It's a different word. It is here in Hebrew. So when this poet decides to speak to God, this is not just any old God. This is the God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush, who sent him back to Egypt, who visited plagues upon the Pharaoh till Pharaoh let them go, who parted the waters of the Sea of Reeds, who led them back to Sinai, who gave the Ten Commandments as a way they could get along with each other. This term of endearment. If you read Garrison Keeler, he's a liberal Democrat, may not be your cup of tea, 
But Garrison Keillor is, is an interesting writer. I've, I've read him for years. I've listened to his radio show, uh, Prairie Home Companion, out of St. Paul, Minnesota. And Garrison Keillor has talked about his early years growing up in a small town in Minnesota. Not Lake Wobegon, but that's the one he talks about. He grew up in a small town, and guess what? He wore really thick glasses. He wasn't an athlete. He didn't get out with the kids that much. He read poetry. He read books. He spent time in the library. He majored in English. He talked sometimes about all of us foolish ones who majored in English. We can't get a job, he said. Nobody wants to hire an English major. We're really good, he said, at the objective case of pronouns, but not good at finding a job. Garrison Keillor went through an unhappy marriage and divorce. He's already had heart bypasses. But he's been married again, and he and this wife have a daughter, about the age of our granddaughter, Abigail. She's just at 12, about to be 13. Garrison Keillor writes about those long, cold, hard winters in Minnesota and how when spring comes, when spring comes, how wonderful it is. In a column in the Tulsa World three weeks ago, he was talking about being at the swimming pool, a municipal swimming pool in Minnesota, watching this daughter of his swim. He said, I'm trying to read Emerson. Emerson is so cumbersome. He said, you, you can only stand five or ten minutes of Emerson. Then you've got to get up and walk around, which doesn't make you a very good supervisor for somebody in the swimming pool. But he's trying to read Emerson. That's what English majors do. And watch this beloved daughter of his. But when he really looks at her, he says, there is nothing but joy in this face. Nothing but joy. Hurts cold winters washed away by the warmth of spring and the cool and refreshing water of a swimming pool. He said a few nights ago, I saw a man walk out onto a stage in a gondolier's uniform and he started singing songs I'd known since I was a boy. Uniquely, Uniquely, and then, oh, Solomeo, and we got to that note right at the end and he hit that note at the end all these Minnesotans, he said, jumped to their feet and screamed as if we had just scaled Everest. There was joy, he said. There was joy. I went to a baseball game, he said, and our team was ahead, but the other team got the bases loaded in the top of the ninth, one out. And suddenly that next batter hit a sharp ball between second and third. Our shortstop went deep into the hole, grabbed that ball, threw it to second. That second baseman perfectly pivoted and threw it to first. Double play. They're out. We win. And the crowd went wild. He said, it's joy. Joy. And then he said, I wish for all of you who hurt and have pain and disappointment and frustration, joy. This little Lutheran boy who grew up. There's a line here in this psalm that appears nowhere else in the Bible. This poet, after remembering what this special vow has done for the people of Israel, says, Yet your footprints were unseen. You were doing all these things, and I didn't see it. I didn't get it. How do you have faith when you don't see it? 
you believe when you don't see? But you keep on trusting anyway. Tim Russert died, as you all know. The network saw to it that we all knew Tim Russert had died. Though he worked for NBC and for the last 17 years had been the moderator of Meet the Press, ABC and CBS, Fox, they all talked about Tim Russert for the next four days. We learned more about Tim Russert than we might have wanted to know about Tim Russert. But a lot of it was really good. I saw one program where one of his close friends said, the thing that impressed me about Tim Russert was not only his drive to get to the truth, from people who rarely tell the truth, this person said, but I never saw cynicism in Tim Russert. He still believed America was the greatest place to live in the world. He still believed in democracy. He still believed in registering to vote, in making yourself aware of the issues and the people involved, and then voting, and then moving on till the next time we got to vote. He believed. He believed that things are going to get better and better. We learned about his family. He's married to a very talented woman, a gifted writer in her own right. They have one son, Luke, and he's loved. They've loved Luke better than life all of his life. And they had recently celebrated Luke's graduation from college. They were all in Rome. We learned that Tim Russert has always been a person of faith, that he wanted his son to be blessed by the Pope. And when you're the moderator of Meet the Press, you can make that happen. Pope John Paul II laid his hands on young Luke and blessed him. When Pope Benedict XVI came to power, Tim Russert wanted him to touch his son Luke, and he reached out and touched Luke. But who taught Tim his faith? Who took Tim to Mass every Sunday, week after week? Who saw to it that Tim was in the choir every Sunday? Who encouraged Tim to be an altar boy and saw that he was never late for a single service when he was altar boy? It was the one Tim called Big Russ. His father, whom he called every day, wherever he was in the world. And Big Russ got up every Monday morning in the snow of Buffalo, New York, to pick up garbage. believe, even when there seemed to be 